So, uh, hey, we're launching a new series today, and uh, we're talking about a series called Our Dwelling Place. We're actually just going to spend three weeks here. We're going to be in Psalm 90 and Psalm 91, and uh, these two passages are looking at our God as our dwelling place. Do we make God our home, if you will? Are we leaning on him and trusting in him? And how do we go about doing that, all right? And so our dwelling place, that's what it's called. And we're going to be walking through Psalm 90 and 91 uh, over these next three weeks. Our job, our goal is to say, Lord, what needs to change in my soul that I might dwell in you and with you all the more? What needs to change in me that I might dwell in you and with you all the more? That's where we're headed, okay? And uh, so just a few thoughts before we get going here. Dwelling. The word dwell, it means to live with or to live in. It also means to find safety and security in. If you're dwelling somewhere, there's a security and a sense of um, safety with that, all right? A life there can be lived because of the protection In fact, dwelling often comes with the word refuge, right? There's this safety or security of getting away. And uh, in fact, multiple times throughout the Old Testament, the same Hebrew word is used for the word dwelling place or refuge can be interchanged. And um, to live in or to find safety. And you know, men tend to find uh, their house as their possession. We call it our house, right? And ladies tend to call it their home, right? And there's a major difference between those two words, and it's not just the spelling, right? And a major difference on how we treat it. And in one, we're trying to keep it a possession that's well cared for, and quite frankly, that we can sell later and make a little money off of, and enjoy the stay while we're there. A house. It's a possession. It's a purpose-owned thing, and we hope it does well in the financial arenas to not hurt us. We're done talking house, right? And, uh, but home, home is this place of security and safety. It actually literally becomes an extension of oneself. And this represents who we are and how we live together. And that often is kind of where a woman's heart is, sometimes where a man's heart is, not trying to be gender specific here, but, but the reality is home, it's this extension of the heart and of the family and the whole of who we are. And so that said, this past week, my wife was like, hey, I'd love to go get a new picture for the bedroom. Now, old Tim would have said, baby, we already have pictures in the bedroom. We're good. Like, we've decorated it. I think it looks great. Let's not spend any money with her. We're good. Just, just leave it the way it is, all right? That was in the old Tim. Everybody say old Tim. Okay, and so for those husbands who just looked at your wives and said, see, that's what I was supposed to say to you. That was old Tim, Okay. New Tim, kind of recognizing, hey man, this is an extension of my wife, and the picture she wanted to make actually was from Song of Solomon, and uh, basically said, you are my beloved, you are my friend. How do you say no to that, <laughs> right? How are you like, no, I don't want to put that up in the house, I don't want right? And uh, so she's like, hey, I'm thinking, let's get this new painting, it's like this glass, and it's got this beautiful written thing on it, and... Uh, And uh, what do you think? Sure, baby, I think that's a great idea, 
right? I think it'd be great for us to warm up the bedroom and, and add whatever you think needs to be added, right? And, uh, and she's like, great. So this last week, she's like, hey, just so you know, we need to go pick it up. And I'm like, okay, where's it at? She goes, it's an hour away, one way. Great. Let's do that, right? And, and she's leaving town, and so we have to go on your day off. Awesome. Let's go on my day off and drive an hour away and get the painting for the bedroom to make it a home, right? And, and so <laughs> I was really into it. I was. Um, so as we took our drive, we, uh, we went for a trip and, uh, and enjoyed the talk, and we chit-chatted about life and some theology, and we laughed and joked back and forth and got down there and got the painting and uh, got it from the girl. We actually found out she was on her way to the airport, to Peoria Airport. Just <laughs> a classic. Just a classic moment. But hey, we enjoyed our ride. It was fine. And uh, I was with my beloved, and I was with my friend. And I had a painting to remind me of it. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, and so, so we jumped back in the car, and we drove back up. And... Uh, you know what? It was a good time just to be spending together. I'm telling you such a classic moment of the difference between house and home. And uh, man, as we're looking at God as our dwelling place, here is our challenge. Man, it is not supposed to be just this house kind of mentality. It is, are you making a home with your God? Is there this deep, warm, expressive extension of him into you and you into him? Are you finding safety and security with your God? Is it all about your love for him and his love for you? Is he your dwelling place? That's where we're going to go, okay? So, that said, turn with me, if you will, to Psalm chapter 90. Psalm chapter 90, starting in verse 1 here. And uh, first point. Dwell in the safety and care of the great eternal God. Dwell in the safety and care of the great eternal God. Man, we're going to see eternity come pouring out in this passage about our God and the provision that he makes for that eternity that we have a privilege of, all right? So here we go. Psalm chapter 90 uh, we'll start right at the very top, just so you know, in the Psalms, there's actually a little tagline above the first verse that often is there, and it tells you a little bit about what's going on with the Psalm. In this one, it says, um, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. This is actually the oldest Psalm of all the 150 Psalms. This is the oldest one. It's written by Moses, so that is like way, 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 way back, Okay. And so we'll see a little bit when we look into it next week. We're going to look at the second half next week. There's some things that we can tie together about the life of Moses and the timing of this psalm. But this is definitely an old, old, old psalm. And uh, okay, here we go. Psalm 90, starting in verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth... Or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He starts out, Lord. Take a good, hard look at that word, Lord. Notice it's capital L, lowercase, O-R-D. Now, we've talked about this before, right? When you're in the Old Testament and you see all caps, 
capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, all of it capped. That's the personal name of God being used, Yahweh. And here it's actually capital L lowercase. And this is a different word. This is the word Adonai. It means master or one in charge. Uh, Lord is a great translation as long as you lowercase it. Just so you know, this is not the personal name of God being used here. This is referencing you're in charge, right? And uh, so it's not the uh, eternal and personal name here, but the in chargeness of God that's being brought up. Lord, you have been our, everybody say our, all of us collectively who are believing in God and following after him. He's like, this is true of the corporate body of those who love God and are believing in Jesus Christ and following him. That's the truth here, right? Uh, our, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You have been our dwelling place. We found safety in you. We found security in you. We found hope in you. This is written by Moses. Right? Think back to the story of Moses. Moses is the guy who got Israel busted out of Egypt, right? He's like, all right, here we go. Tenth plague is on, we're out. And he's taking the people into the wilderness, and it pretty much goes bad right from the beginning, right? And Moses is trying to lead them and give them guidance, and they're rebelling, and they're even kicking back, like, why did we do this? Why did we leave? We would have least had good food if we had stayed there. And, and there's this complaining and this backbiting. And Moses is walking them through that experience, getting the Ten Commandments and coming down to usher it to them. And they've made an idol because they were too impatient and just cut loose on some self-absorbed worship. Moses was that guy who was walking with them and watching God work in them as he cared for them, putting a cloud over them in the day to lead and guide, and a fire by night to lead and guide or even to show them where to stay and rest. And man, I'm telling you, Moses saw God's hand of protection and provision even in the midst of a rebellious group of people. How much is that like the church today, right? As we throughout our week try to live our life for our God and we make it about four seconds before we get wrapped up into self. And uh, man, I'm telling you, our God provides for us. Our God has a safety over us. Our God knows what's going on and he cares. And all of God's people said, and that's a huge deal. And he says here, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. There is safety in you. There is refuge in you. There is hope in you in all generations. You know, Moses didn't say, uh, Lord, you've been my dwelling place for a few minutes, really. Not for long, but for a few minutes you have been. And not really for anybody else, but he's like, no, for all generations, for every human being that lived, you're living in a generation, and that generation represented by God working with. And man, the reality is that there are people who are like, no thanks to the God thing. And they're missing out on the dwelling place of God. But the generations, each and every one of them, had God expressing into this world his love, his power, his compassion, his provision, the hope that comes in knowing him. All generations. How many generations? That means this one too. And uh, may we know God as our dwelling place. Man, it's a sweet, sweet privilege. It says, 
before the mountains were brought forth, like before creation, right? Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. Like before that, that's what he's saying, before Genesis 1.1, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, like before you got into your creative powers, God, before that, what's true? From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He's like, let's make this super clear. In the beginning, what's the next word? God, right? Like, we better grasp this. God has existed from eternity past to eternity future. Everlasting is his nickname. God, full-on eternity. From eternity past to eternity future, no beginning, no end, always, always existing. And here's the deal, not growing or changing or shaping, Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord, you're a God, I change not. God, from eternity past to eternity future, exactly the same, he is God. God Almighty in charge, authority to create, he speaks and it is, he is love, God is love. Man, anybody who kind of has the summary of Old Testament and New Testament, you're like, well, it's not the Old Testament, God. It's the New Testament, God. We're missing something. There's a unity between Old and New Testament, and it's the same God, Old and New. We may see moments of expressiveness of God that are coming out, but I'm telling you, same God. Everybody say, same God. Huge deal that we grasp. Has not changed, will not change change. God is love. God is holy and righteous. He can speak and make things exist. He's in charge. And all of God's people said, and that's it. Moses is like, I'm going to start this psalm out with a monster statement about you are awesome. That's where I'm at. God, there's no one like you. Creation has a beginning. Not you. You're stunning. And you're awesome. He transitions from the greatness of God to the smallness of man now. And he says, you return man to dust. Right? You return man to dust. Like, it's really important that we grasp this. We are created beings. And there's a, a similarity in the content of our body makeup to that of the earth, right? The dust. And he's like, just so we're super crystal clear on this, every single one of us as created beings is headed to the same spot, back to the dust. And man, if, it, if the Lord doesn't return, each and every one of us has definitely in our calendar of life that God is fully aware of the fact that death will be tasted of. And uh, that is a part of what we're real and sitting under. It says, you uh, return man to dust. Please notice it says, you return. Who's in charge? God's in charge. And we better understand that, man. As you look at this broken world, I say this a lot, but can we just admit this world is broken? We all good with admitting that? This world is broken, man. 
There's some major heartaches that go on in this world. And in the midst of this broken world, God's in charge. And uh, it's easy to get wrapped up in that and start saying, well, then what's what's wrong with God? If you're letting this go on, and uh, what are you doing? And man, let's be super crystal clear with the authority of God and the sovereignty of God. God makes things happen. Those are always the good. When God's hand is making, it is good. Every good and perfect gift is from above, comes down from the Father of lights, right? James 1, God makes the good happen. He does allow some of the heartache to touch, some of the brokenness of this world to touch, and he absolutely disallows a monumental amount of brokenness from touching us. He makes, he allows, he disallows. God is working in the middle of this broken world to bring hearts to him. And uh, hear me, man, the pain that we taste in this world, it does come at a cost of our sin. It's not God's fault that this world is broken. We usher it in. Our humanity ushers in the sin in Genesis 3, super crystal clear that the cost of sin, the cost of selfishness, the cost of saying the world is going to be about me, well, the cost is actually that we will taste of toil in this world, there will be physical pain, and there will be physical death. All of those things, death comes by sin. And that sin came through Adam and Eve, and we would have very easily done the exact same thing. They were great representatives of us, and uh, we'd have done the same. And this is a huge deal that we understand. We definitely ushered in the sin to this world. Are you good with that? Are you good with embracing the theology that human sin broke this place? It's really an important moment. Make sure we grasp that because our next step when we deal with pain is usually to go, God, why did you? Right? And really, God's working in this broken world to do something amazing. And our real statement should be, God, I'm amazed that you still... That should be our phrase in the middle of this broken world. And uh, he says, you return man to dust. Yes, there is a cost for our sin. And yes, God is in charge of it. And yes, he knows exactly what he's doing. There are times where we don't get it. Trust your God. That's dwelling with him. He says here, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Uh, He's giving a very direct statement. God's spoken word has authority. God's spoken word has authority everywhere because everything is his creation. It all sits under his word. And as God speaks, it is. And uh, it says here, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. A thousand years. Everybody say that's a long time. That's a pretty long time, right? You, know, you might have tasted so far of 10 years or, or 20 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or maybe even 90 years. And a thousand years is a long time. And he's like, God, I know you. When you look at a thousand years, You glance at it as it's past, and you're like, well, that was a nice day. 
That's how fast it is for you. When you look in the breadth of eternity, a thousand years is a drop in the bucket. It's like a, a day that passed by. Man, how fast does a day fly by for us sometimes, right? We get done with a day and we're waking up the next morning and we're like, holy cow, I can't remember what I did three days ago, let alone two or one. It's just flying by this week and it's amazing how fast short time can fly for us. That's a thousand years for God, Moses' insight. And uh, he's like, yeah, a thousand years is like a day for you when it passes. He says, or as a watch in the night. Uh, that's like four hours. He's like, no, 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 never mind. A day is too long. It's more like four hours, right? A thousand years, it's like, it's like four hours passing by for us. Man, and while we're asleep, it just zips by, right? That's what it is for you. You have eternity in hand. Time is not your nemesis. You aren't battling time. You aren't wrestling time. You aren't wishing something about time, slower, faster, whatever. Each moment is very, very short to you, and you've got it all in hand. Do you know that, God? And are you trusting in that God? See, he knows your life. And he knows every breath you're taking. And he's willing to walk it with you. See, wouldn't it be easy for us to say, man, a thousand years is like nothing to you. So, so you don't care what happens in our lives. But that's not what it says at all. It's the exact opposite. While eternity is your middle name, you care about every little detail of what's going on. We can find you as our dwelling place, our home. Do you know your God as your home, your safety in this broken world where you can spend time with him as the eternal king? Do you know him? Man, Scripture's super clear that we must know him through Jesus Christ, his shed blood. He died on the cross. He rose again. He is our hope. And while Old Testament was wrestling with trying to figure out what God was going to do next in his revealing, we get the privilege of already knowing. Jesus Christ coming to this world, God stepping down, him dying for us, him rising again for us. We've covered that kind of well, right? Him rising again for us. He is alive and Jesus Christ is our hope and we can find our dwelling place in God Almighty. And all of God's people said, and that is huge. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you leaning on God as your dwelling place? while we go on this journey, ever so short and temporal here in this world? Do you know? You know, we used to uh, go on a lot of trips when we were, well, we still go on traveling trips. We try to get away a little bit further now as the girls are a little bit older. But before, we used to kind of jump in a car. And we would try to drive to different places, partly because of the cost of airline tickets, yada, yada, but also just it was easier to get there and get around, and, and you could save a little money with rental cars and all that. So we tended to travel kind of in the Midwest, maybe a little bit out south, southeast, but we didn't go very far because everybody knows that traveling in a car is a nightmare, right? And we're like, hey, let's do this. It'll be fun. We'll have a good time. And how come we think that? And then you get in the car and you're like nine minutes in and the first question you hear is, 
right? And you're like, yeah, pretty much. Only 17 hours and 51 minutes to go, right? And uh, almost, we're almost there. Or, or the next question you hear after are we there yet is, can I go to the bathroom, please? Can we please stop? That's usually about 21 minutes in for our family where we have to figure out who didn't figure that out ahead of time, and then we have to pull over somewhere and get that managed. And man, I'm telling you, the top two questions that we all experience as we go on these road trips, right? Well, when the kids were younger, we used to travel, and you know, let's be honest, they'd fall asleep, they'd sleep a lot, they were very sweet, they would uh, do their little things, whatever they were doing, and there were times where it just got to be a long time in the car, right? And uh, I don't remember where and when we created this idea, but at some point we were driving in the car, and uh, I can't remember even if it was me or John, honestly, but at some point we said, hey, you know what? Every time we go under one of those bridges, everybody raise your hands in the air like we're doing a roller coaster ride and scream out loud, right? And uh, it seemed like a really good idea at the time. <laughs> and so we're... <laughs> And so we're driving along, and we see a bridge, and then we're like, woo, right? And one of the times we were going through Tennessee, and it was one of those forever long bridges. You know what I mean? So you're like, woo, 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 all right. But it was fun for the kids to start watching and looking around and paying more attention to what was happening, and we would laugh, and we would joke, and we would... Still do it when we were getting older, and when the kids got into high school, it was probably more me and Jana doing it, and they were mocking us, but we were doing it, and right, the reality is we were trying to make a temporal trip an enjoyable ride along the way. We were going to laugh together. We were going to joke together. We were going to raise our hands in the air and laugh and have a good time together, and man, simple question for you. On this temporal journey in life, are you willing to do the same? Are you willing to raise your hands in the air in massive laughter celebration for the greatness of your God and all that you're being able to taste of and enjoy the ride? I'm not saying there won't be pain along the way. Trust me, I hear the pain. Man, I know there can be rough moments and those aren't the moments to fake it. Those are the moments to get real, to get real with your God, to get real with a couple of friends, to bring it in real form. But man, there are times where you do need to just let down, to recognize the bridge you're going under, to raise your hands and cry out and laugh together and high five and say, we're going on a journey. Let's enjoy the ride together. Man, part of dwelling with your God is recognizing this life is super short. May we go for a journey with him where we find him to be our safety, our security, and our enjoyment along the whole trip. May your God really be your dwelling place, much like a car becomes our dwelling place for like the better part of a day, and then we get to where we want to be for a longer period of time. And isn't that exactly what our walk is like? As we've got this journey of life, but then there's where we're really headed. Praise God for the rest of eternity. And that's what it's all about. Are you willing to dwell in the safety and security of your God to find those things where you can laugh and raise your hands and celebrate, recognizing, yes, this is a broken world, and we do have a God that cares for you 
in the midst. That's the first part of the journey, all right? Second, admit, admit your weak and vulnerable position before the great eternal God. Admit your weak and vulnerable position before the great eternal God. Remember, the first part of this passage was, he is eternal. We are not, right? That's kind of the summary of the first part. And uh, now he starts going into a pretty heavy discussion of who we are before our God. He says, you sweep them away as with a flood. You sweep away humanity as with a flood. And... Uh, I was trying to reflect on what this would even mean or look like, and, you know, we live uh, in Morton, actually, on the southeast side. We actually have the creek of Morton kind of running through part of our backyard, so for those of you who know anything about that, that means every time it rains sort of heavy, we get like a flash flood moment. And uh, so the creek actually runs at about this deep where we're at, not very deep at all, and the kids go over there and they try to just, you know, play in the water or do a little fishing, not our kids, but other little kids, going over and doing little fishing and whatever in there and uh, having fun in this kind of water. But once the torrents of rain start coming down, it literally rises all the way up. I will never forget when we had first bought the house, it was nine years back, and I, I actually went out in the backyard in the pouring rain because I could see the water rising, and I'm standing, we have a, it's like a double berm that they had designed to protect our house. So I'm standing on the one berm, and I'm looking into the water as it's literally rising up right in front of my eyes. It gets up to about 10 or 12 feet deep, man. It goes from like an inch to like 12 feet deep, and then it pours over the berm, starts lapping onto my feet, so I started running back to the house as it now pours over into the next berm, and it fills up there like seven, eight feet deep. And now it's kind of back uphill, but the water starts rushing that way. Like, how do you know there's a lot of water when it's defying gravity, right? It's like, we're going uphill, man, and the water just starts roaring uphill. It's rising up to about seven feet deep. It gets up to the edge of our property. It's laughing onto the property that we own. And I went out there, actually, and uh, our little dog came out with one time, and uh, I stand out there by the water as it's racing by, and he starts headed up to the water. Can you imagine what would have happened? I grab him. I'm picking him up. I'm like, no, can't let him into the... He'd be gone, man. This thing weighs nothing. It could have been taken off with this water. It is amazing how hard and fast it runs. In fact, so hard that if it raises high enough, it'll actually start pushing into the sewer wells, and it starts popping up into the street in front of our house and pouring out there, and we'll take a foot or two of water out front. The house stays perfectly dry. They've designed it well right now, and it's managing all the water in and out, and it's around us as we're watching it all rush past. He's like, I'm telling you, like the water rushing by like that is how swiftly our lives seem to be taken away. It just grabs us and moves on. And uh, man, God is sovereign and in charge. And our lives are short, and his is not. God is eternal, and he's recognizing the bigness of God and the frailty of man. Everybody just say, I am frail. That's what we need to recognize. You don't dwell well with God if you're like, I am awesome. It usually doesn't go real well, right? Let's recognize who God is and who we are, and I am frail. 
It says, they are like a dream. They are like a dream. What does that mean? Well, have you ever had one of those dreams where you wake up and it's so vivid that you actually are feeling what you were feeling in the dream? Right? Maybe you got mad in the dream or you got hurt in the dream and you wake up and you're like really, really, really hurt. And you can't even explain why. You just had that feeling happen. And uh, I've heard this a lot from people. It doesn't happen to me a lot with the feeling thing, but there's times where you wake up from a dream and you're like, it was so vivid. And then somebody's like, really, what did you dream? And you're like, well, it was, I don't know, it's gone. Isn't that crazy how it's so vivid to your soul? And like five seconds later, they're like, tell me about it. And you're like, I have no clue. I don't know what I was thinking or feeling or seeing or anything. I'm just telling you it was amazingly vivid. And uh, that's what he's like. A dream is what it's like. So vivid. And in the next second, you can't even barely remember the life lived. Frail and small. It says, like a grass that is renewed in the morning. Like grass that is renewed. I look over at my daughter and I got this smug look because the word grass in our home is kind of a nasty word. We always sit in the kitchen and I always compare our lawn to the other people's <laughs> and, and we fail. We just don't. And I'm always like, I don't get it. Our, our grass isn't as green as theirs, right? Fair? Always, right? And so I'm like, it's not as green as theirs. Theirs is so much darker and lusher. Of course, I don't do anything to make it different. But... <laughs> But what's with that, right? And uh, so we have this grass, and it's the lushness in the morning, right? As the dew settles on, God has this amazing plan. As the dew settles on the lawn, and it literally revives the grass, you get a little bit of a greener, a little bit of a straighter stand-up of the grass, and the dew is literally refreshing it. And, and it's like this revival from overnight. And uh, man, at the same time, he says... Like grass that is renewed in the morning, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Like throughout the sun of the day, throughout the heat of it all, it just gets a little more brittle. The dew dries off. The grass gets a little stiff. It might even turn a little more brown. And it just withers. It fades. And that's day to day. And he's like, just so you understand, man, that's like humanity. There's this weakness to us, this frailty to us. We're like grass that gets a little bit of life and then a little bit of fade and then a little bit. And it just sort of cycles like that. And uh, man, we have this, this weakness or this frailty in us. And man, when you think of grass from like spring all the way to fall, right? That's a wild ride. I, I have to say, we believe that God has more colors than green in his palette. And so in our home, we welcome light colors of brown. And uh, we're like, hey, you know, I think that's one of God's colors too. And, uh, and so if God chooses to have it rain in August, then awesome. We taste a little more green that year. And if God chooses not to, we get to see a little bit of God's brown palette. You know what I'm saying? And uh, those are the days where I'm usually like, wow, all you can see in our yard is big, giant green weeds. And everything else has stopped growing and it's brown as all get out and the neighbor's yards look awesome, right? And so then I'm like, how come our yard can't be like theirs? Maybe because we're not watering anything, right? Maybe that. 
And uh, we go all the way to the fall with this dead, brown, kind of whatever, but the next year it just comes roaring back, vibrant green. And man, the more it rains all summer, like we've had a couple of times in these past summers, the more green it stays all summer long. Man, we need to be refreshed or we fade. Just so we're clear, that's not God. Eternally, always, constantly, in this glorious state of perfection and peace and refreshment. That's our God, man. Do you see him that way? Or do you see God as a bit uptight, a little upset, having to run this world, right? Maybe we project onto him. I can't imagine being in charge of an entire world of ding-dongs, right? Like, that would be hard. I'd be stressed out, you know? I'd be walking around like, oh, can't believe I have to. And that's not God, man. God fully grasping what's going on. He's got a plan from beginning to end. Your God engaged in this world, very calm and at ease and moving through it with a methodical, loving goal. That's our God, man. Do you know him and are you dwelling in him? And I'm telling you, we are frail. We need refreshment or we are in trouble. We are constantly on the fade. That's who we are. Okay. It says, for we are brought to an end by your anger. Now, this turn is a turn we usually get uncomfortable with. We're like, oh, let's just stop. That was really good. Let's pray. Like, I I don't want to deal with this part. And, man, I'm telling you, we do serve a God who is love. And we do serve a God who cares for you. And we also serve a God who is holy and righteous. He brings into this world an understanding of what is right. And he does have an anger, a healthy, non-sinful anger. And see, a lot of us, we hear the word anger, and all we know is sinful anger in our homes. And so we don't understand how God could even remotely be angry without sinning. But I'm telling you, without sin, caring passionately for what is right, still having love engaged, but standing against what is wrong, God does engage in this world with that anger. He does. He works in this world, not just as love, but also with the righteous holiness and standing against what is wrong. That's a huge deal that we grasp. And, um, you know, it, it is an amazing process to wrestle with what the word anger even means. And usually we don't understand how love and anger could even be remotely connected. And, um, you know, uh, there's a verse in Romans 12. It actually says that we should love what is good and abhor what is evil. They go side by side. You see, you don't actually have active love if you won't stand against what is dangerous, what is sinful, what is wrong, what is hurting. That's not real love if it doesn't stand against evil. And God has a real love. And he stands against the wrong of it all. That's where he is. It says, by your wrath, we are dismayed. Literally, we are shocked. We are terrified. We are brought to our knees because you are so huge and we are so small. It says, you have set our iniquities before you. So newsflash, every one of your sins known by God. And Maybe you're like, yeah, I know that. 
If you say that casually, that's not understanding it yet. Every one of our sins fully known by God. Here's the news flash. Praise God that we do not have to stand on our own works. We have one hope, one way, one truth, one life. His name is Jesus Christ. And we stand before God not because of our righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness. Him for me. Everybody just say, him for me. Him for me. Man, it makes it so much easier to dwell in his presence because while our sin sits ever before him, Christ's righteousness sits ever before him. Praise God for that. Amen? Man, hear me. Your sin. Are you aware of how dark it is? Are you aware of how offensive it is to your God? Every moment you take that prideful drink, every moment you take that hateful breath, that refusal to forgive, that desire to punish, that want to get out and use your wrath to fix what's wrong. To just run off and do whatever feels good because who cares? And be careful. Our sin is black as black can be before a God who is as bright white as white can be. Man, when he says our sin is ever before you, that should bring the trembling. And there is one reason it doesn't, the hope in Jesus Christ. If you are standing before your God doing this, it's been a pretty good few days. I've done really well. And so I stand before you right now, God. I'm kind of happy with the last three days. I've put in check a few big problems, and my sin has really not been very rampant, and so, please hear me, that's a bad plan. Standing before your God on your own righteousness and merit will never bring dwelling place experience with your king, never. You stand before your God based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ and on your knees because of your unrighteousness. That's how we dwell in God. On my knees because of my weakness, celebratory because of your strength, you are awesome. God brings hope. Are you willing to hope in him? Man, I'm just telling you, America, counseling, however you wanna say it, psychological world, this is the statement. Dig deep in yourself. You're a good person. Find the good. It's all good. You'll be fine. Try to get that feel good, respect self, self-esteem, self-help, whatever phrase you want to put on it. That's what the world goes after. Please hear me. Not if you're going to dwell with your God. Our self, anything, doesn't come close at all to the greatness of our King. We need Him. And all of God's people said... Man, hear me, we need him. We need refreshment like the grass who needs the dew just to bring up a little green. We need him. We need him. Eternity is found in him, not in us. We need him. Life in him, hope in him. He is our security and our strength. We need him. 
Are you willing to put your sin before him and say, God, forgive me. I need your grace pouring on me. I am nothing. You are everything. I'm trusting in you. And that is dwelling with your God. This is the first half of Psalm 90, and it ends rough. As he leaves us with our sin, he says, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. What is it deep within your soul that you've been thinking or feeling that you know is wrong? You're not telling anybody about it, but it's burning you up. What is that action that you've been a part of that you have not revealed out? And you know it's not right, but you're in it and you're going to do it. Secret sin. It says the light of God is pouring on it and is ever before him. He knows. You sit before the God who speaks in this world exists. Your righteousness comes up woefully short before his righteousness, right? Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The measuring stick is him and his glory, and we come up woefully short. Our sin, he's the Savior. That's how we dwell in him. Are you willing to confess your sin? Are you willing to lean on him and watch God work in you and start transforming? Man, my goal, God, is less of me and more of you. Change me that you might be glorified. I need you. Everybody just say that phrase with me. I need you. Say it louder. Say it bigger. I need you. That's the first half of Psalm 90. Let's pray.